So I, I have like a funny thing to share, which isn't directly related to this, um, to this book, unfortunately, but it's broadly related to the series so far, which is that just this week we've properly set up our, well, week and a half ago, we properly set up our bird feeders. So currently I'm sitting in a room and I'm like one, two feet away from this feeder we have attached outside of a window. And of course we have attracted sparrows. Yay! So somewhere between <laughs> 60 and 80 sparrows have been showing up pretty much every day <laughs> to these feeders. And I was reading this Brian Jake's FAQ, and someone asked, like, what were, what inspired the sparrow? Like, was it this or was it that? And he was like, no, it was kind of just the sparrows who were just constantly fighting in my front yard. Yeah. Um, and I can testify that... The sparrows are constantly angry at each other <laughs> and are extremely cute and are also just incredibly cantankerous. So I think the sparrow... Yeah, yep. they are a warlike people, they're, they're, for sure. They're two fighting right now, right now for this one <laughs> spot. And, this, and the thing is, is, there's a free spot on the feeder. They don't they don't need to fight, and yet, and yet they choose to. Have you so. considered, like, leaving out candied chestnuts for them just to see if it'll get them to stop? That is a great idea. You're just going to accidentally poison your sparrows? <laughs> oh, <no>. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably very bad. <laughs> yeah, they can eat sugar, right? It's the it's the, like the weird refined carbohydrates that you're not supposed to give birds. Right. Yeah, I think so. Um, but they eat like fruit and stuff, right? I, I bet like a little yeah. honey and stuff wouldn't hurt them. Chestnuts are probably great for them. It's a, it's the candied part that's probably the yeah. I'm I'm the, thinking that like, yeah, sure. Or like maybe the different herbs, spices, like. Just right. anything with capsaicin in it. Like, if you were to give them <laughs> just a um, <laughs> little sparrow heartburn, it would make it worse. Man. At home, we had these very, very well-fed sparrows who just, like, had gotten very lazy and would not, would, would only wait for the feeders when we put them out. And they were just so, just large and comfortable and happy. And they would just, they would just, like, chill out. And just just be waiting there outside for us to put the seat out. It was so sweet. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. When I was at the the zoo in Omaha, we went through the the ape house and saw the um, like the amazing like giant red bottomed baboons and um, like in the gorilla enclosure, the gorillas are just kind of like banging around, not really paying attention to anything, like taking naps and like scratching their ears out. But there was one little mouse that was like running through the enclosure, and I was like. That dude's on a quest. That's right. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Speaking of quests. Welcome back to the Red Wall Podcast, your leftist look at the books and world building of the Redwall books by Brian Jakes. I'm Matthew. I'm Sam. And I'm Millie. Hi, everybody. Hey, how's it going? Hey. It is nice to be back. Yeah. It is nice to be back to read the fourth book in publication order, Mariel of Redwall. Uh, the first book that we've had so far that has a female protagonist, which is pretty cool. Yeah, mm-hmm. this one is feminist. It's also, um, like, I don't know, as we've been going on and just, like, reading books and just watching him develop as an actual author, this one was like, he did it! He he wrote a book that was coherent. Yeah. Right. It's yeah. so much fun. I, I actually I actually genuinely really enjoyed this one. Yeah. And I, I, a much 
a much tighter uh, sense of storytelling in this one for Definitely. sure. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. And like, yeah. And so uh, should we? Oh, I remember ahead. when I was little. This one was like it was this one and Pearls of Lucia that were my favorite, and like. I've always just thought that, like, little kid me liked this one because it was about a girl and it was like, you know, representation matters. But, like, actually, upon reading it, I'm like, no, this one was just, it was fun. It was, like, the most fun book that we've read so far. Yeah. Um, And there was a lot going on, but it wasn't, like, it wasn't too jumpy. He moves back and forth very fluidly. Um, mm-hmm. and like, it's easy to follow like character progressions and sure. There's not, it's yeah. very deft. Yeah. It's very deft. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of really great and and it's cause there are, it has the thing that, um, Madame sort of have, which is there's like a lot of, there's a lot of enemies. There's a lot of sort of, there's a lot of villains, but it never feels just like out of hand or that they're tacked on. They're all very well integrated yeah, doesn't, into these stories. They, they It doesn't feel like multiple books that have been jammed together no. to, to make like one thing that's 350 pages long. Yeah, it's very um, and it mm-hmm. And it also really has that thing that we liked about Moss Flower where like the different storylines actually do uh, complement each other yeah. in a lot of different yeah. ways. Uh, yeah, and he does a, so, and he does a thing which he doesn't do very well in Matameo, which is start thing, which is like plant seeds very early for resolutions that come later. So there's not yeah. really, I don't really like there are not really any resolutions at the end of the book that aren't very clearly planted very early on, and that's that's what makes yep. the ending like this this really complicated and tumultuous ending still very satisfying, I think. Well, before we before we talk more about the uh, the themes and stuff, shall we do a, a quick recap of what the plot of this one yeah. is? Yeah. Like okay. All right. So it's a dark and stormy night. Hell yes. Uh, that's, that's literally how the book starts off. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got Gabul the Wild, this pirate king who lives on the, the horrible island of Terramort, which I, I had such a hard time keeping track of names in this book. I ended up making a chart because there are a lot of characters and I kept calling him Gabagool. And he is Gabagool. This one is the Sopranos. Uh-huh. Right. <laughs> anyway, and he is really mad at this little field mouse maiden who apparently has bested him. So he throws her off the cliffs into the mm-hmm. ocean. Um, but we don't know this at the start, to be yeah. clear. And that's a part of it's what makes separate. it interesting. It, it, right. Oh, yeah, that's we, right. We meet, we meet this character of the the mouse maid um, being tossed around in the ocean, and then she it washes ashore um, after she's been fighting with this rope around her neck and clutching to this that's piece right. of driftwood. Um, yep. Which was really cool and engaging. Like, mm-hmm. that was just a really fantastic, just vivid description of what she was going through. And then she washes yeah. up on the beach, and she immediately has to fight a seagull that wants to eat her. And yep. so she hits it in the eye with her rope and becomes best friends with her rope. <laughs> yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just like a tight, sort of intimate plot of just, it's just pure survival. It's like Jack London-esque. She's like battling the elements. She's battling against like a handful of other creatures. It's very pure. It's very to the point, and we have like we have her character painted very broadly, and it's right. just such a good opening. 
And and she has amnesia. And I love a story mm-hmm. that starts off with a character who has amnesia. Because um, it, it reminded me of uh, Roger Zelazny wrote the the Nine Princes in Amber mm-hmm. series. And that one starts off with this really engaging, like, dude wakes up in a hospital bed. He has no idea who he is, but he knows from little snippets that he can remember from his coma that, like, somebody's trying to keep him in this hospital. So mm-hmm. he, like, has to fight his way out and, like, reconstruct his identity along the way. And that's pretty much what... Uh, at this point, Storm, Storm Goldwacker, mm-hmm. uh, ends up doing. And she has christened her rope. Or, alter- right. alternatively, we could we could say it's like the Bourne movies. And this this, oh, right. this yeah. badass warrior lady <laughs> who's just got, who's just, like, she's just a fighter. She's just yep. not going to back down. Yeah. Um, like, pure so then, uh So then, meanwhile, back at the ranch, uh, Redwall Abbey is just doing Redwall Abbey stuff. It's just like a pretty peaceful time back at Redwall Abbey. We're introduced to a few different characters, um, including um, Danden, who's a, a novitiate. And he's he was like kind of a, a problem child in his youth. But like he's kind of coming along in in the story, you know, in in his like training to be a Redwall mouse. And that's pretty much what's going on there. Great, great grandkid or the great grandkid of Gonf the mouse feet. Mouse that's feet. Right. right. Yeah. Great, great, so great grandson. So he gets a pan flute that's very yeah. special. <laughs> yep. Um, it's a special <laughs> yeah. pan flute and we get more extremely, I, like everything else about um, Jace's like writing has come together except for his poems, which are still awful. <laughs> they're better. Th- and this one has... This one has a lot of them. The last last one, which is not saying much. It's a low bar. But it is. So they're preparing for a feast, and Mm -hmm. somebody remembers a little snatch of a poem that they learned, like, in the gatehouse that is this kind of weird, like, prophecy sort of thing. And everyone's like, oh, that's a horrible story. Don't read that one again. Anyway. Dark shit. I don't know why you brought that to the party. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Our it Earth- just kind of comes out just like suddenly, hey, does anybody want to read this? Like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> but you've got great descriptions there. And it's like, it's, I think it's really like the whole Red Wall stuff is totally peaceful. You just have this, like, the whole arc of that first thing is just all of these preparations for the party coming together. And it's yep. like really, there's a really nice contrast between that and this, like, struggle for solo survival. And then just this, like, jolly cooperation and all these people working together and yeah we have some really good food descriptions and some like detailed recipe descriptions which are, are they good well <laughs> descriptions no. are detailed shall we say well they, they're we'll definitely the detailed then hold yeah. on let's let's continue our yes. uh, let's continue our, our recap here so our amnesiac uh warrior maiden um encounters some of the salamandastron long patrol hares who set her up with uh, like a libertarian survivalist squirrel um, to get her to Redwall Abbey. <laughs> the suffered citizen right. squirrel. And the yeah, reason, the sovereign, like, she thinks that squirrel. Redwall is cool, but specifically they say the people at Redwall are really good at figuring out riddles, so you should go there. Right, yeah, yeah. totally. <laughs> yeah. Oh, is that what they're known for? I so mean, this, this is, this the is squirrels, Yeah. So the squirrel is a total asshole to her, and she leaves, but ends up running into a character from the rest of the book, uh, a hare named Tarquin, um, who the two of them make their way to Redwall Abbey. Um, And while they're there, they have the feast, and the guy recites this poem that he learned, and she's like, boom, like the, you know, the the penny drops, and she remembers. That's me. That's that's the trauma. They, like, hypnotize her. 
they do some like uh like repressed memory like hypnotism stuff yeah the cool uh, blind witch simeon um is able to like he he does some weird potions to her and so right. she's sort of like in a trance the whole time and then when she comes out of it, they're like, hey, we want to inform you about this. And she's like, no, I remember all of it. Shut up. It's a very yeah. interesting therapeutic <laughs> methodology. That's, yeah, wouldn't do, it. <laughs> wouldn't do it. Yeah, so, so her backstory turns out to be that she and her father, a fellow named Joseph the Bellmaker, were traveling across the ocean with a bell that Joseph had made for the Badger Lord of Salamandastron. And they got hijacked by pirates. Um, everybody was basically killed or press ganged into slavery. They got taken back to the fortress of Gabagool, um, where he made her like a scullery maid, locked up Joseph the Bellmaker because he needs a bell tower built on his big fortress. Uh, and then a fight broke out and she decided like, I've had enough of being treated like shit around here. And so she like grabs a sword and actually like gets the best of, of Gabool the Wild. He can't have that, so he throws her off the cliff. And that's, you know, now we've come, like, full circle back to the mm-hmm. beginning of her story. So, of course, she's got to go kill Gabool, mm-hmm. right? She's got to kill Gabool. She's got to go Match. get her debt. So, yeah. So she sets out, and from then on, it's a fairly linear yeah. plot for well, her. We pull in we pull in a few other characters as well, which I think is worth noting, because right. I really love this little bit. It's a very... It's very um, reminiscent of the of the scene in The Hobbit where they where where Gandalf introduces the dwarves one by one to Bjorn so as not to overwhelm him, and right. so Mariel sets out super determined, and then she runs into Tarquin, and, and Tarquin's like, "I'm coming along," and she's like, "Oh, darn it, okay." And then yeah. they run into <laughs> Dandan, and then they run into oh, what's the hedgehog's name? His name is hold on. Dury. Dury. I love the hedgehog. Dury. But yeah, our, so, our story is Samwise Gamgee, Dury the Hedgehog. Yeah. And so she and so she's sort of like each time her resistance to sort of like having another person along is just like barely barely reduced. But she right. but she accepts them and then our, our our merry band goes on its way. Yeah, so you get your your adventuring band. Meanwhile, back at Terramort, uh Gabul the Wild is getting like crazier and crazier. And one of his captains one of his like lieutenant you know one of his his sea pirate captains decides in the middle of this little power struggle like i'm just gonna steal his best ship and take off with it so they sail away and there you've got a bunch of like pirates chasing each other on the high seas and a big battle where one of the other ships catches up and there's just just this slaughter but um this guy's name gray patch gray patch the the pirate captain is like, I know a place where we can hide the ship. We're going to take it up the River Moss and, like, park it there, and then we'll figure out what we're going to do. So then they're there, and they're in the middle of the forest, and they run into Sovsit Squirrel and capture him and basically torture him until he's like, okay, okay, there's a place called Redwall Abbey that, you know, probably has lots of food. So they decide to be basically like a knockoff Clooney the Scourge and his horde. Yeah. And they go and lay siege to Redwall. Just with so less the, personality. Right. It's like a yeah, less, right. less interesting Clooney. Yeah. Um, yeah, so uh, what, what else happens? Mariel, Mariel yeah. and the band are following this sort of... Uh, the mean, riddle in this one isn't like a thing that was foretold and you've got to look around the Abbey for clues. It's just there was a traveler guy who 
traveled all over the place and he wrote all of his directions in like verse. Yeah. Kind of weird verse. So they have to figure out all of the steps of this this trip to get yeah. back to they've got, get back to Terra they've got a travel guide basically and so they right, yeah. and so they're basically they they travel sort of the length of the map they go north um up to this place and they said so they, they there's all these there's all these various like trials and tribulations you have you've got like a swamp you've got like weird weird sort of like camo weasels who they defeat with the help of this Really bizarre little owl family, um, <laughs> but but I like it. I, there's there's a lot of little side. Yeah. There's, there are really a lot yeah. of tiny side characters in this book who are given a lot of yeah. like a really diverse character. Like we've got the sovereign citizen squirrel, we've got this really like wonderfully like kind of kind of stupid but really brave and charming owl family. Yeah, the the McGurney family yeah. who like their family <laughs> motto is like, okay, well, we're not wise owls, but we're brave owls. Anti, like we're fighters. Scottish sentiment. Right. Um, yeah. Very, um, yeah, they're like rural squirrels. <laughs> homeschooled right, yeah, squirrels they, or not squirrels, owls, the homeschooled owls. Yeah. Um all they do is fight. Oh, right. All they do is fight the weasels. That's just their whole yep. thing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah, they encounter a, a snake, uh, they encounter a stork, they encounter a river full of pike, mm-hmm. uh, and then they make their way through another swamp, which is um, really dark and creepy and um, very atmospheric, like completely pitch black inside of it, and they have to kind of find their way through that. Um, and finally, they make their way out to the coast where they meet um, Babo. Babo the, rules. Another, Babo's yeah, the best yeah. cook in all of yeah, these just, books. He actually uh, has under- good recipes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Babo and uh, Skeet, yeah, so, which is just a great combo. Just the, the, the mm-hmm. two of them. Again, just like the side character, which isn't there for the whole book. They're just there for a little section, but they're just really fleshed out. Yeah. Right. Yeah, you don't meet many um, like individual wanderer types in these books. Um, in Matameo, you had the like the old kind of going senile like hair that they run into around um, Melcaris. Uh, but Babo is just like a guy who lives on the coast and he kind of knows the comings and goings and he helps them out. They find a compass. Um, what what ends up being a compass and they set out in this little like burnt out pirate ship from from the from the fight between the pirates to get to Terramort. Yeah. Um, we they just end up in over a wreck. the lobster, which is like the coolest part of the oh, yeah, the lobster is really great. great. Yep. Okay. An underwater an underwater fight scene. An underwater uh, fight scene to go get a metal sparrow. Yeah. Wait. Yeah. Yeah, it's a metal yep. sparrow on the on the bottom. Yep. And so you and you have like you have Dandin with Martin's sword, which he's been which he's been hauling around this whole time. Uh, yeah, that's important with, to note too. For, mm-hmm. He has the sword. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you get Dandin with Martin's sword, of course, which really doesn't make a lot of sense. Mario's the warrior, clearly. Um, uh, yeah, I, I want to circle back to yeah. like how everybody levels up really fast in this story. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, so, so they have all of these adventures on the way and they do eventually make their way to, uh, Terramort. They get separated because they get in a shipwreck with one of the other pirate ships that's trying to get back to Terramort. Um, Meet up with the Badger. Dandin, they join the Badger. Uh, yeah, yeah, Dandin and Dury end up getting taken as galley slaves and Tark and Mariel are just floating out on the ocean. Presumably they're going to die. Unbeknownst to them, the Badger Lord of Salamandastron has decided to leave Salamandastron. And he goes out, and there's this really sweet, like, 
unseen, you know, like the, the allure of the unseen battle that happens between him and an entire pirate ship where he just slaughters all of them. Um, and then just falls asleep on the deck of the ship. And he's just like, I'm just going to let the ship take me wherever it takes me. And it takes him, you know, very coincidentally to exactly where Tarquin and Mariel are about to drown. And he saves them. And then they all get up to Terramort, meet up with the, um, oh, okay. So they get to Terramort. Dandan and Dury are galley slaves and they're like parked in the harbor and all of a sudden this like mysterious mouse and some warriors get on the boat and like slaughter the remaining sentries and it turns out that this is Mariel's missing father, Joseph the Bellmaker, who the last time we saw he was also getting thrown out a window, but apparently he survived that and like has started this army and they're gonna like... Which is an acronym. Track. uh, Yep. Yet another, right. yet another acronym, <laughs> Gorilla Force. Um, <laughs> um, and the rest of it is, uh, you know, kind of a cut and dry sort of, yeah, like battle. I think, I mean, yeah. at, at that point, finally, all of the plot lines have resolved into two plot lines. Because before this point, there's really a lot going on. We have a set yeah. of hares traveling around who eventually end up in Redwall for like the final resolution there. And then we have. Mario and her crew traveling around and getting separated. We've got the Badgers story. We've got the rats traveling to Redwall and being chased. We've got Gabul's mm-hmm. story. But it's fine. But and like pretty deftly, I think it's pretty well balanced and and, mm-hmm. and handled. Where they actually come together and we have this one battle out on the on the the pirate island between like all of the adventurers and the Badger and Gabul, and we have. The battle and then the, sort of the final showdown at um, the final showdown at Red Wall, which I think is a really interesting plot because a lot of, because it's sort of about there's this like very interesting thing that I think we can get into a little more later, where part of the Red Wall story is not just defending Red Wall. It's like asking, are we going to put ourselves at risk to free the slaves, which the the attacking right. pirates have? And ultimately, yeah. the resolution of this plot is is the hares take it upon themselves after some persuasion from. Um, the, the mother badger at, at Redwall yep. to go out. Mother, mother Mellis, is that right? Yeah, yeah, I think so. To go out and take like this epic last stand and like fight all of the rats by themselves and free, yep. and free these slaves. Right. Uh, I mean, just, just this absolute uh, uh, like Magnificent Seven sort of like going down in a blaze of glory, yep. which is just heartbreaking because you love them at that point. And yeah, I, w- I would dope. add, Sam... It's, it's not just about, like, will we proactively, um, like, try to help other people who are in trouble. Um, it also reflects a lot more than I think some of the other books did on the nature of violence and whether, like, killing in self-defense or killing in defense of others is justified. Because um, you've got uh, basically Danden's best friend back at Redwall is Saxtus who gets appointed as kind of, like, the young, like, war council. Um, and the first time he kills, uh, like, he shoots an arrow and kills a rat, and he breaks down crying. He's like, I can't believe I just took a life. Like, And he hates the hares because the hares are so blasé about, um, you know, you know, this is war, lad. Like, we we have to do this. They're, they are, like, the ultimate enemy, and if we don't do it, they'll do it to us. And he finds that so distasteful. Um, and by the end, like when the hares go out for their historic, you know, just this legendary last stand against an entire rat army, 
um, and beat them. Mm-hmm. I mean, more or less, like, completely beat them. Uh, he finally comes around to realize that, like, no, there's there's a difference between, you know, killing in vain and killing for, like, a greater good. Yeah, and I think it's the book is very sympathetic to him and is sympathetic to those who are who are uncomfortable with violence. I, I think it has a much, there's a much more interesting spread in how it shows people's, it shows the characters' relationships to violence. And obviously it's a kid's book. And so it's sort of limited in the uh, internal depth that characters get, but they are allowed like a wide range of reactions and they're allowed time to work through that. And it's quite, it's, it's interesting in a way. I think, like you said, a lot of other books aren't. Yeah. Okay. So, so that's more or less the story. Of yeah, course, all of the good guys get get to yeah. It, it resolves. They get to Terramort. Gabul gets killed by uh, the badger throwing well, a scorpion at yeah, him. Yeah, he is gets hilarious. killed. He gets killed in a very sort of like appropriate way, where he's he's killed yeah. by his own evil tool, which is this scorpion he's been keeping in the basement. Right. Um, and then they all make their way back to Redwall, and all of the right people get married and. Um, you find out at the end that Mariel and Danden were like, you know what, maybe living at Redwall isn't for us and we're going to go off and have more adventures. Apparently we do have more adventures with them later. And they're not married. So that'll be cool. Is is an interesting point. They just, they're just going off and adventuring. They're just friends being pals. Just, yeah. (laughs) Just friends being pals doing adventures. Just, yeah, just adventure mice doing adventure mice things. Mm -hmm. I was just really glad that like, in this is the first time where I was, like, invested in a relationship in which, like, Tarquin was just the horniest character that we've seen. <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of horniness in this and one. And he wouldn't yeah. stop talking about Honorable Rosemary. Yeah. And, like, Hun, Hun Rosie. Yeah. I'm just really glad that she survived so that Tarquin could, like, chill out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just unbearably horny. <laughs> yeah, a lot of a lot of horniness in this one. You've got uh, Tarquin is in love with Hun Rosie, and also you've got um, Tree Rose, uh, who I I was oh, referring yeah. to in my head. You've got you know you got Mariel the warrior, you've got Dandan the sword carrier, you've got Tree Rose the horny, you got you know um, who, Tree Rose she's is an like e-girl. this. <laughs> uh, yeah, <Yes. laughs> that's right. Um, yeah. Tree Rose is just this, she's a squirrel who lives at Redwall Abbey, and she is super into this sort of, like, uh, strong, silent type named yeah. Roof Brush, who I want to circle back to in a little while. But, um, uh, yeah, she uh, she's just super horny through the whole thing, and kind of a brat. Um, yeah. They literally call her a brat at one point. And she grows. She does, yeah. That's right. Yeah. I mean, she, she like, gets beat up. <laughs> 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 she tries to bully Mariel and then gets just like her just totally beat up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and bullied. And so she's forced so, to grow. <laughs> so yeah, I okay, so I had two um two topics and I'll let the two of you choose which one we're going to go with first to kind of kick the conversation off. One of them was uh kind of what we're talking about right now, like the role of the female characters in this book. Um, the the feminism or not of Mariel the Red Mariel for Redwall. Um, the other one was to go off on a different tangent and talk about how Gabul the Wild is a strange villain for these books because he doesn't do anything. He literally never does anything. We stick on. Should we stick on the feminism theme for a little while? Yeah, we can touch back on Gabul. Gabagool. Sure. 
It's Grandpa Cool. Hey, I'm hey. pillaging here. Hey, 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 I'm a freaking sea rat here. And I mean, hey. like, you know, his, I, I, I really like the, about 70 pages into this, I decided that, like, all of the um, enemies were going to be what, like, the same as what I understand the Sopranos to be, where they're, like, having internal difficulty with, like, <laughs> right. their relationships with other people. And yeah. in that way, like, this is a feminist story because it's about, like, characters being driven by their emotive sides rather, and their male characters rather than female characters. And all of the female characters clearly have, like, these very distinctive um, motivations and also, like, ideologies mm-hmm. um, that that carry them in a morally consistent way from like point a to point b within their character arc. uh yeah but all of the 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 evil guys are just um they're messy and they love drama yeah yes. totally <laughs> absolutely yeah i mean you've got like yeah whereas this like you know, a- mariel is a like strong warrior field mouse with a rope who don't need no man right that's right mm-hmm. yeah she do yeah. what she wants yeah i mean and it's and it's certainly there's like a, an interesting I, I feel like the third line of all of the villain plot lines is this, the corrupting nature of power, where where you have this like very reasonable rat gray patch who's like, man, my boss is just he's he's off his off his off the rails. He's gone right. He's he's um I, I can't trust him anymore. He started just killing his lieutenants. I'm gonna leave, and then like. Ten minutes later, Grey Patch is like, "I'm the captain now. This yep. is <laughs> do not well, disrespect me." I thought that was sort of interesting. Like at the very beginning, one of them just literally just wants pay. Yeah, and he's not able to get pay from doing his his work. Um, and his labor is entitled to all it creates. It's so a, like it's a labor some issue. of that, some of that it does belong to him. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. so he asks for it, and instead he just gets beheaded. And yeah. it, it was in that moment where I was like, "What these pirates need is a union." Yeah, um, <laughs> right. <laughs> pirate union. There are more of the pirates than there are of the gabagool. That's um, correct. <laughs> you know, and it, and I talked about this a little bit um, when we did Moss Flower uh, with relation to the to the otters. Um, that you know, historically speaking, pirate ships were run rather democratically, and in fact, like. The captain was just the guy who, like, called the shots in battle, but you also would have had your, like, quartermaster, who would be the guy who, like, comes up with, here's the divvying up of the spoils every time we take a ship, or, you know, here's here's how the food gets, uh, uh, you know, distributed out. And I was thinking, like, this, none of these ships have anything like that, anything like a, a quartermaster or anything. They don't, they don't run, like, real pirate ships. It's really just these little, you know, fiefdoms on a boat. Um, and then, like, a bigger kingdom, you know, on this island. I think a, a slight weakness of, of Jake's is that he doesn't... He rarely puts a lot of thought into the logistics of the villains when he puts a lot of thought into the logistics of Red Wall and, like, how that yeah, works. Yeah, sure. Whereas, like, the pirates right. are just sort of pirating. We don't see, like, a lot of them. Like, <laughs> like, like who, are they, who are they raiding? Like, they, they've... Like, they're shown capturing, like, one ship. Where's all this loot coming from? Okay, just... okay, see, and this was, uh, I made the joke in our uh, show DM last night that I was just going to be screaming, merchant ship, yeah. 
the entire time. Because there's a scene when uh, when Grey Patch and his rats are trying to get into Redwall. Um, they they try the uh, the old um, like scale the walls with with grappling hooks trick, right? And as Grey Patch is giving them their instructions, he's like. You know, just pretend like it's a big merchant ship. It's exactly the same as when we when we board a merchant ship. And I thought, merchant ship? Where the fuck is a merchant ship coming from in this world? I'm going to. And where's it going? Yeah. Well, it's, it's and what is going it carrying? to Salamandastrum. That is a place that it can go to. <laughs> yeah, but where's Joseph coming like- Because I feel like that place is large enough to have trade. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I just feel that there's a lot of things implied... By, by these, like, things, like the mention of merchant ships that are just never really realized in, in, in the books. Yeah. The yeah. Like, oh, where's the just, center of population the... that has the has the trade going on that you would, like, you know, trade for a bunch of, you know, somebody's making fine silks out there. They talk about, like, in the, yeah. in Gabul's treasure chest, there are, like, fine silks. Who makes those? This, this right. And then also, like, Joseph is the best bellmaker right. in the world, implying yeah. that there are other bellmakers like (laughs) for who it also implies things about supply chains like who's mining the ores to make like does joseph have a forge does he like i love putting silver in my bells to make them sound sweet i just don't know where the silver comes from (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean there's there's kind of there's a sense like the 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 jake's problem with scale just on on a different level which is that he throws these things into the world that just imply the existence of this much broader right. world, and then he leaves nowhere to put them. Like yeah. the pirates, like they 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 they're scouting west for Grey Patch, and it's just dead islands all the way to the west. There's right. like, nowhere to go there. Yeah, you know, it's like somebody should have gone and checked in Portugal. You know, <laughs> right? <laughs> yes, Man. that's where I would head if I were a pirate who had just stolen my my like pirate king's ship. I'd head to Portugal. Yeah, like, yeah sell I'm it, bad. get yeah. another one. Well, there's definitely, yeah. in, in the previous books, there's this, like, implication with Martin and Timbalisto that there's this sort of territory up north, which is, which sort of, its its sole function is to be a place that's raided by the pirates, and so everyone there is, like, scrawny and fight and, and, and warlike constantly, and then right. the pirates raid them and they fight back, but it just, it doesn't seem very sustainable. I don't know, like, what's the, <laughs> right. what's, what, what are you getting from just raiding all of these, like, scrawny, yeah. bristling villages? But, I mean, even like the the realm of Malkaris would have been a good place to drop in. Like, mm. you know, one of the things they're mining down there is like precious metals and gems. <laughs> you know, is is Joseph using bloods blood silver? Oh God. for his for his <laughs> bell. It's incredibly important to be asking these questions. Yeah. Like, are these? Listen, <laughs> is this iron ethically sourced? Because I don't think so. I don't. I, don't I, know if I it think is. that it should be important to the you know the people of Redwall that like. If they're going to be having these ethical quandary about saving slaves, then they need to be thinking about slaves in order to remain ideologically consistent. Yeah. yeah. They gotta think globally. Um, do do they only confront these issues when they actually see them face to face? Are the people of Redwall liberals? Yeah. You know, Melly, that, that speaks to that speaks to another uh, issue that I wrote down, which was um, going back to the joke I was making about how everybody levels up really fast in this story. Um, I don't know that they're liberals so much as they seem to have sort of a societal amnesia, right? So, um, you would think that after a number of sieges of Redwall, the recorder of the the official recorder of Redwall would have written down some stuff about, like, 
here's what you do if you get attacked by a bunch of sea rats, right? Like in this one, you have the uh, the technological advancement of the longbow mm. is introduced to them, you know, and that's like in real history that was a big step forward technologically in in waging war. So we're like. I don't know, something like a hundred years before the siege of Clooney, right? And it seems like it would have been really helpful for them to like be able to go into the recorder's office um, nicely organized instead of just these absolute fucking slobs that they seem to have um, <laughs> keeping like giant dusty piles of like scrolls all over the place. Which rules? Be like, because they tell you that, that like everything is dusty and, it's and then the people keeping them are just slovenly and not even like no i got a system i got a system i right. know where yeah. everything is <laughs> like but it would have been helpful for them to be able to go in there and be like oh man yeah the last time we got attacked by pirates like we made these longbows yes, you know but it also is very believable that they are not organized <laughs> right. right so it's, it's been it's about like 120 it. years right it's been like five generations yeah, they since do use uh, a bow. they do use this, a bow in Redwall. Remember, they like since, yeah. they this big ass bow that only the badger can use, and she just fucking takes out. That no, bow. it's a ballista. They build an actual ballista that fires like a spear, and then they shoot it exactly one time, and then they never talk about it again. That's right. It should still probably <laughs> be like attached to the abbey somewhere. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe right. it'll come up later. Yeah. <laughs> just stuck just stuck it in a closet stuck it in one of the massive basements that they have here just the endless underground chambers that apparently the guy can just wander <laughs> into like Simeon can just wander in there and find plot relevant yeah right okay yeah let's weapons. let's circle back to that because uh to to finish off um we we did get off track talking about um like female characters in this one and i wanted to ask okay. Melly what she thought about uh mother Mellis. Um, as com- as as compared to why Constance because we the have the same name basically yeah no 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 just because <laughs> no I, that occurred to me but I'm not going to try to make a joke out of it because uh, I know what kind of things make you mad um, <laughs> uh, no I was I was wondering because. Uh, you and I, I, I think all of us have agreed that Constance the Badger is a really cool character. She's like the, um, she's feminine in her own very special way. She's the guardian of, of Redwall. Mother Mellis seems like a very different sort of femininity. Mother Mellis is a Catholic nun. Yeah. Like, like, and she reminds me of Catholic nuns that I had in high school. Like, Mm -hmm. okay. She's terrifying. (laughs) I I gotta say the scene, I didn't expect to be, have such like an adverse reaction to the scene where she like forcibly bathes, um, Mario. Where that was like, cool. Yeah, I was like, this is pretty fucked up, actually. Like, have a conversation with But it was extremely her. Catholic nun shit. And also, she's right. very yeah. into corporal punishment of children. Yes. Like, she talks about <laughs> hitting kids multiple times. Yeah, well, like, and the Dibbins, the Dibbins, who are great characters in this one, <laughs> yeah. also talk about how that's, like, their main grievance against the adults is that they're always getting spanked. Yeah, which right. is reasonable, I think. And because everybody else in this, like, also is Catholic, like, all of these, we're gonna get books later down the line that talk about, like, how incredible Mother Mellis was, and how, like, you know, she was a paragon of, like, discipline, and I'm just thinking about, like, what, like, like, my dad and his brothers say about, like, the extremely, like, terrifying nuns that they had in high school, in Catholic all-boys high school in Detroit, like, like, 
they used to get like beat up by these ladies, which sounds like right. what Mother Mellis is like. Mm-hmm. And then they just have this like lifelong reverence for like this type of woman after that for forever. Just destroys, yeah. yeah this is like author- the, the authoritarian child raising method, basically. Right. Um, yeah. It's pretty horrifying, I think. Like, I, I, I just really, I was so struck by just the forcible washing. And just this rejection. And then, and it doesn't really, like, it doesn't really play up. And, like, when I read this, I was really, I kind of, I was really on edge for fear that this was going to be a plot point. But where she's, like, forced into a dress. Right. And she's like, I just oh, want to yeah. wear my fucking That's sack. Right. I want my sack. Yep. I want to be back in the sack. I want to yeah. be, you're, like, forcibly gendering me in a way, like, in, in this, this, like, particular vision of femininity that I don't want. I want to. <laughs> right. She likes her sack. Yeah, give her pants. Like she probably would like pants. Yeah, like something. Yeah, it would make more sense for her for sure. Um, Right, and she's just like forced, and she's like forcibly washed and forced into these clothes, and it's just really, it's really off putting. And I was super glad that the book did not like hit that point more because I was really (laughs) worried that there was going to be like a freaking like Breakfast Club style transformation. There was just a part that came up. Yeah, like she's going to be like Uh, feminized. yeah, the, the, like, she's all that, she comes out. And, I mean, there is, like, a she's all that mm-hmm. moment where she comes outside and Dandan's like, oh, man, she's pretty. Oh, my God, it's Taming of the Literal Shrew. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, really fortunately, the book does not commit to that story because that would have been... Yeah, no, thank you. It's, it's very good that it didn't. It sort of did with Tree Rose, but, like, in a different way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then our and then our last like really strong uh, female character that we haven't talked about a whole lot is Hun Rosie, uh, the the honor the honorable Rosemary, um, yeah, she's cool. who is she's just a badass. She's a badass long patrol long patrol hair. Sucks um, that she's not given like an actual title though. It definitely feels like there's that sort of weird relationship where they're like she's a woman so she can't really be in the army even though she's like entirely functional but she's not like a lieutenant she's not like the way she's introduced it's sort of like she's their award yeah interesting which came off which which was just sort of like jarring to me but it it, it doesn't really like it doesn't really follow up on this this is like brian jakes applying this right like this this, like particular understanding of like how people behave and then he's like yeah but they're all hairs so of course they're all gonna here's how the long patrol like the ranking system works also they just have i don't like yeah it was extremely weird where there wasn't a lot of like expository content about like the structure of the long patrol which i have a feeling we're gonna get in the book the long patrol Um, right (laughs) but like one would hope like how does she and how does she in fact fit into this because it's clear that she's not how is she honorable what does this what does this mean in this context right is she a judge like or is she just like, but then like, I mean, noble? but functionally, like the ranks don't really matter. She's that a captain. Much, right? It's, I mean, yeah. yeah, you've got, I mean, Clary is, you know, theoretically he's like in charge of the team, but really everything the long patrol does always seems to be like, we're all just going to go along with this plan because it's the right thing to do. Right. Yeah. Like you, you never get an instance in, at least not in this book where he's giving an order 
and somebody doesn't want to follow it or like tries to fight him. It's like they all just know what needs to be done, and so they you know like collaborate that way. It's, I, so you wonder if like the ranking of the Long Patrol is more of uh, they're they're really just more honorifics than anything than yeah. like functional military ranks. I think it's interesting because there is there, there there's like a moment which again is really effective in building up to the to the final showdown where we're sort of shown the hairs in like a really cold light as they're killing people from the from the walls. Yeah. And Clary says, like, without any of the, like, the foppery or the, the sort of, like, the, the, the idiot, like, the, the idiomatic, bizarre language the hairs usually use. And he's like, yeah, we've just, right. you just got to kill someone sometimes. You've just got to yeah. do violence. And that is necessary and very cold. And man, and you see that in their last stand as they're walking up. They just walk up, like, at a regular walking pace. And, like, the first rat who turns around, Clary just fucking shoots him in the head. Yeah. You know, and then the other two, like, kill two more rats, and they've got their arrows drawn again, and they're just going to walk straight into this camp and just kill as many rats as they can. Yeah. Um, it's it's pretty, I mean, well, it, I, I don't know. I picture it I picture it filmed, like, seriously, like an old Western or, like, a Tarantino yeah. film or something like beats, that. The, the dramatic know? beads of sweat. But I think yeah. I think what's interesting about it is, is what it shows to me that there is this like really clear understanding of dis of military discipline there, and that there's this sort of performance of um, like silliness, but they're actually right. really dangerous, and they do sort of yeah. understand how like how the how, how and they, they probably and, and so my guess was that there is actually like a sort of a, a structure of authority. It's just kind of hidden under all yeah, of this sure. like, ridiculous performance. Yeah. Well, and that's, that ends up being Saxtus's big revelation about them, right? Where he thinks that they're not taking it seriously until the last stand happens. And he's, and finally it hits him that like, no, all of the foppery was like, that's the way that they cover up like the grim nature of the business that they do. But they absolutely do understand the difference between life and death and the, like the gravity of making those choices um, as demonstrated by they all just walk to their deaths. Yeah. There's an extremely expository moment between Saxtus and Simeon also, like mm-hmm. right at that moment, where Saxtus is like worried. He sees what's happened and uh, what's happening and he's worried about it. And Simeon says like, can't like, cause, cause Simeon's whole character is how can you not see this obvious thing that I can see even though I'm blind. Mm-hmm. And right. <laughs> for this, it's good always wins. Which is just the, the, that's the theme of all of these books yeah. in everything. That's like yeah, sure. the, the overarching idea. You know, each, all of these books have like a certain formula that they kind of follow. Um, and, you know, he just said the quiet part out loud where he was like, it's almost like Jake's is just trying to calm the children that are reading this. Like, are all the hairs going to die? Yes, but the good guys will win. Right. Because this yeah. book is intense, and I think in a way that the other books are not. There's real sacrifices made. There's in that, like actually, in the, in the previous book, we have the sparrow sacrifice, but it's just like pfft, brushed over. Yeah, yeah. This there's one, like actual stakes here. Yeah, and in this one, it's really yep. it's, it's really meaningful. We really go into what it means for them to go out and like why what their motivations are for sacrificing self, themselves to free these to free these slaves. Um, yeah. It's, it's it really hurts. intense. <laughs> and it hurts. It's a motive. It's something mm-hmm. that, like, you know, you're guided to experience very specific emotions as you're reading this. You become attached to these characters in ways that you weren't becoming attached to, to characters in previous books. Yeah. Right. So, like, 
I don't know. This, it's just a better told story because you're actually experiencing these things rather than being told that's what you're supposed to be experiencing. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, it's interesting because it's a really ambitious book in, in terms sad. of its complexity. <laughs> yeah. But like in, in terms of its complexity, it tries oh, yeah, to do I, so Oh, yeah. I much. teared up a little bit. Yeah. And it's just like, and, and he really, he actually pulls it off. And it's really impressive because there's, I think it's, it might be, I'd, I'd have to do a count, but it might be one of the largest cast of characters we've seen so far. With all of these side characters, all of these like named characters at the Abbey going on this trip. Yeah, I I counted. Okay, so I I I made my chart. I counted somewhere between twenty and twenty five named characters who are like functional characters. This is not yeah. counting um, like side characters who are named at the Abbey. Um, I'm also leaving off the just the avalanche of like pirates, it, it, like even the pirate captains. There are like ten of them. Mm-hmm. It didn't bother to write any of them down. They're, they're all somewhere like between. Rats and they de- have like the same like the same motivation. word insult right, they're, name. They're, like, they're pretty much the like, they're interchangeable characters. And well, and, yeah, yeah, right. shit knows. <laughs> yeah, and 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 you can say kind of the same thing about a lot of the like brothers and sisters at the Abbey. You know, that, like, they're, they're all just kind of like red wall people and they don't, you know, they're, they're not like functional characters, but depending on how you count it, it's like 20 to 25 different characters. I mean, and, and it keeps introducing characters too. You got like mm-hmm. all of a sudden, uh, like Oak Tom, a guy that everybody loves and we don't know anything about this guy, but he ends up being like this badass who ends up being a functional character that mm-hmm. you care about. Right, um, and he's well integrated, yeah. and and it's not that they're, yeah. they're given like a solid amount of weight. The side characters are given time. The main characters are given more time. It just really came together. Yeah, and in terms of things coming together, I think that uh, one of the things that he did in this one um, also very deftly was to incorporate a little bit of humor into the into the the yes. situation. You get your like. Uh, like your G officer Krupke moment from uh, West Side Story, like at the height of the tension, um, all of this funny stuff happens. So you've got this scene where they're using the grappling hooks and it's like this surprise attack and it's just the Dibbins are out there like, we're going to be warriors too. Oh, look, here's a rope that just came over the wall. Well, I'm going to cut through that. And they end up killing like, like half a do- upwards of half a dozen rats, I think, just like these three year olds out there with like brandishing kitchen knives and going like, "Hey, we're warriors," and it's a very funny scene. There's there were a bunch of like there were actually a few points which I I genuinely laughed at it. There's this yeah. one bit where what is it? Is it um, Dury the the hedgehog is doing this sort of prolonged bit where he talks about his uncle's like aphorisms and the and yeah. all the like my uncle would say that, you know, when it's raining, it's going to be wet. And yep. you're like, <laughs> you know, it's like... It's just Yogi Berra. Yeah, it's like... Yeah, what? no, it's <laughs> like, like, a full barrel isn't an empty one. A squirrel's <laughs> bound to have a tail. Yep. This rules. It's, it's, it's See, yeah, and that's funny. why I was that's why I was thinking of Dury as the the Samwise Gamgee because you know Samwise is always talking about uh, like his old gaffer, yeah. and Dury's always talking about his old uncle. Yeah, yeah. and the uncle and, and uncle Gabriel, who's just like yep. constantly referenced, and it's actually it's actually funny. I, I was genuinely yeah. taken by it. Uh, the thing that made me that's laugh nice. out loud was uh, so they're in the swamp dark. They figured out the trick that the toads trying to play on them to like lead them off the path into the swamp, um, and then. They're walking along, and uh, Tarquin uh, is just kind of rambling to himself, as he always does. And he turns to the person next to him and continues his story, and then realizes that this is this frilled newt who was not part of the party. And he's like, blah! (laughs) 
and it's really funny just imagining this hair kind of rattling it's it's very looney tunes i mean that's like a like a tex avery joke to have like you know like the bad guy snuck up next to you and you just continue talking to him it's yeah. it's very funny yeah there's a lot of like there's a lot of great physical comedy there's some like really corny humor and it actually pulls off a lot of it in a way that I I didn't find some of like some of the previous books left me a little cold in the humor front. And yeah. he's he's definitely getting getting more skillful. Right. Yeah, at like conveying I, what he wants to. He's learning how to write, and I'm so <laughs> proud of him. <laughs> uh, just as a just as a little side note, what cover did everyone have on their Mario copy? Mine's got boats, and then she's inside of a circle. Yeah, I've got that one, too. It's like the beautiful, like, tempera painting of the, Mm -hmm. like, the pirate ships pursuing each other across a choppy ocean. I love it. This is not the one that I had when I was little. I think this is the, I don't know if this is the original one. That's the one. I love this one, which is, Uh like, her on the boat, and it also has Slinger with the gun. With the gun! Yeah! Gun gun Heavily armed Slinger. Unbelievable. I mean, where, they... Probably what happened was they told the artist, like, draw a pirate rat. And he was yeah. like, oh, I'm a pirate. What do you got? Silk silk scarves, earrings, probably got a musket in there. Yeah, little, cool uh, boots. It has a lot of detail. Extremely cool boots. Like, it definitely has a lot of detail from the book. Like, it has his beard. It has his, like, snaggly teeth. And then the, the artist was like, I'm just going to put a gun in there because that's what pirates yeah. have. That's badass. <laughs> um. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, uh, that's that's a decent transition to a thing that, that I mentioned before. Gabool. Doesn't um do Yay. anything. He kind of hey, I'm a sea rat here. Hey. Uh, yeah, forget about hey, it. Forget about it. He doesn't you know, pirate. He, he doesn't pirate. Gabriel was in a foul temper. He's, he, Most he, of his <laughs> servant slaves had gone to the galleys of the three ships under repair. You come to my <laughs> castle <laughs> on this the day of my bell tower's building. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean he he really just kind of goes crazy. Um, increasingly murderous toward all of his underlings. Mm-hmm. Um, doesn't really ever interact with the plot in any way, except for kind of kicking it off. Yeah, he kicks it off, and also kicks off like a whole bunch of other plots by mistreating his captains. Right, right. he's the reason right, why yeah. Patch shows up at, at, at Redwall. Yeah, yeah, he's just there, just getting wilder and wilder. And we have like the subplot of his like lieutenants rebelling against him, and him like killing one and then tricking another. Um, but yeah, he's just, just slowly yeah, losing it. I loved it. Uh, I loved the introduction of one of the one of the Sea uh, Rat captains, where it's like he was like a super smart, canny, like tough, like longtime campaigner, and then a page and a half later, he's like, "We'll just jump into this hole together." What do you think, buddy? And he's like, "Oh, all right, yeah, we'll do that." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, here's the treasure is down there, down in the very dark hole, <laughs> down in the sure. gotcha. very dark hole. Sure. <laughs> Just come, just come to my cellar. <laughs> gonna, gonna cast down there. Nothing untoward. So, so yeah, the uh, like the the madness of King Gabul. Um, the bell keeps ringing at him. So, like, is was that all in his head? Is the bell yes. haunted? Well, there's, there's definitely like a sort of spiritual thing where it's where like he's dreaming of the badger coming for him, and the badger is dreaming of him, and. Yeah, just like we had with Clooney, right? Where, like, he's dreaming about Martin the Warrior or uh, uh, a mouse that he mistakes for Martin the Warrior. Yeah. yeah, and so you have, like, and it's it's it feels like it's it's real. It's not just it's not just him him losing it. This is a real thing that is causing him to lose it in this universe. Right, um, yeah. 
Yeah, which uh, which leads into uh, uh, one of the big topics that I wanted to talk about was the religion or rather sort of spirituality of this one, right? So uh, um, in addition to, you know, a- as we've been going along, we've gotten a better sense of sort of the ethos, the, the credo of Redwall Abbey, and none so far um, as detailed as the one that we've gotten in Mariel, which is you've got Saxtus and uh, Danden um, actually reciting, you know, they've got like a, a, a motto, you know, this, mm-hmm. this uh, like long motto about, you know, we'll take in like any, you know, any itinerant wanderers, we feed the poor, we, you know, focus on all of our arts, especially healing, you know, I thought mm-hmm. that was pretty cool um, to see it spelled out more like that. But there's some other interesting stuff going on. Um, especially, uh, did you notice how many times hell gets mentioned in this one? Yeah. Hellgate. <laughs> Hellgate shows yeah. up a lot. Hellgate and shows up a lot. And there's also a dark one. A dark one. And he's got a book. Yep. <laughs> the dark one has a book. They, they never talk about dark forest. They don't talk about, you know, in Madame Mayo, they talk about like crossing a lake or whatever. But in this one, it's like you either die and it's neutral or you die and you go to, hell where the dark one is and he's got your name in his big book yeah right yeah, yeah. He's got a book your name can go in it sometimes it's like actual supernatural judgment implied right right yeah so not not a part of the other books at all if i remember correctly yeah no i i it, i was really reminded of uh watership down and and the uh uh, the difference between um, El Arera and um, uh, what the the Black Rabbit of Inlay, um, the like the Black Rabbit of Inlay is like sort of the devil, and he's sort of like death, you know, um, very much part of the religion of of the rabbits in in Watership Down. But you know, and in this one, it would be like if only the pirates were talking about the Dark One, then it would be like, oh, that's the pirates' religion. Yeah. But it's not. Because sometimes, uh, sometimes back at Redwall, they talk about, like, we're going to send this guy straight to hell, you know? Yeah. yeah. This- so there was just, like, a, a period of 300 years between, like, Martin the, the Warrior and, like, Matthias, where they were just Christians. <laughs> like regular old Catholics. And everybody, yeah. Well, I was going to say, I, I, had, I had a response to this, which is that my, my copy has... In the blurb, it says, in the stunning tradition of Watership Down comes magnificent tale, yada, yada, yada. And yeah. I'm like, I would not say this is a very similar book to Watership Down. <laughs> yeah, in, right, in, right. In a lot of ways. And it's, it, it is maybe... It's talking animals, it's, it's like, who have on a, a society, quest. Right. In, the, in the grand tradition of Watership Down, an animal farm comes... <laughs> <laughs> Wait, an animal farm? Yeah, yeah, talking animals. What's the, what's the difference? <laughs> yeah. in, in the in the stunning tradition of Babe, Pig in the City. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's really funny. Well, on that, you know, on that same uh, spirituality note, I thought there was some interesting stuff going on with uh, Martin the Warrior, who appears in this book um, much more explicitly than even in Madame Mayo. Yeah. Um, and the way that he is tied or not tied to the landscape. Right. So like as as Mariel and crew make their way out of Mossflower Country into like the weird swamplands, they reflect on how like the country just feels different. It's like the spirit went out of it or something. Yeah. Um, 
And earlier on in the book, I think it's Simeon is talking about how, like, everybody in Moss Flower Country is sort of under the, like, the spiritual descendancy of, like, the spirit of Martin the Warrior, right? Um, but then, as it goes on, people continue to get help from Martin, um, it, up to and including uh, Lord Ronblade, our, our Badger Lord, um, in, in, like, the moment when he's getting attacked by the Scorpion and Martin, like... Does the like the litany of fear for him in his in his brain, uh, and he like has the has the presence of mind to like grab the scorpion and throw it instead of trying to fight it. Uh, so I I don't know. I just thought that was an interesting like he's hinting that like Mossflower Country is imbued with the spirit of Martin, but maybe like the spirit of Martin travels with Mossflower people, or I I don't know. I, I'm not sure exactly how to square that circle. I mean, I think I think there's definitely a coherent way you can look at it with these the characters who Martin speaks to being, being exceptional, right? He talks to he talks to Mariel, he he mm-hmm. helps them like he helps them out of the, the swamp, and then he talks to the badger, and it's like these are heroes on a quest. It it totally right. makes sense that Martin would yeah. would like jump in right then. Yeah, he talks to blind Simeon and like guides him through the catacombs, you know, while he's like half asleep and uh, like brings the sword back so that uh, Danden can can carry it with him on this quest. Yeah. yeah, I mean, he's like a very literal Deus Ex Machina in how he just he he just helps with these like very specific plot situations, like the, the specific like trials and tribulations of our heroes. Right. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I, I don't know if there's uh, if there really is that sort of um, like landscape connection, that sort of uh, like environmental philosophy about, you know, like Martin is in Mossflower Country and like travels with his, you know, with his heroes or if he's kind of omnipresent, but strongest in. I don't know. It's uh, it's kind of an interesting thing that he's introduced into this. I think Martin is where it's convenient for him to be. Uh, right, <laughs> but there is. I think there is. There is. Are you telling me that I'm overthinking <laughs> one of the Redwall books? Yeah. I, I mean, because hmm. we're just gonna have to close up shop if yeah. that's the case. <laughs> yeah, I. There's an interesting like phrase you use, which is the environmental thinking, the, the environmentalism of it, and there there is a really interesting bit in the Redwall Creed, um, where they sort of talk about like having respect for the land. Um, right. Yeah. And I, and, I, and there's definitely like a contrast in the, like the. Redwallers' relationship with the land and all of these other groups who we see who are sort of are, are like forced to like prey upon travelers and do all this stuff to survive. Right, they sure. Don't, they don't have any like the, the land does not provide for them because they don't take care of the land. Yeah, I had that noted also um, using fire as a weapon because mm-hmm. um, in, in the book Redwall um, they talk about like even Clooney's not crazy enough to use fire. Yeah. You know, but then all of these sea rats show up and yeah. and it's fine for them to use fire because they're surrounded by, you know, water or like beaches that you can't burn down. You they know? don't care. So, and they don't care yeah. about the consequences. They're not thinking about right. the consequences of, on the land. Yeah, um, totally. Yeah. Yeah. There yeah. is something that I, I wanted, thought- I wanted, I want to touch on a little, which I just want to mention, which is the, the ships and the seafaring in it. And it's really interesting because there's a couple of bits in it that, Make me think, Jake, like, Jake has a real familiarity. It sort of reminds me of, like, the way he writes about the, the mole engineering in previous books, where it's oh, yeah. very detailed. And there's one point near the start where he describes, I think, the first the first rebellious captain as a ship's lawyer, which is this, like, really archaic phrase. 
that was specifically yeah. used by by sailors generally to describe like really sort of lit- litigious or pedantic like crew crewmates. Like a ship's lawyer is the person who says, "Well, the letter of the law says you can't. You should be paying me this much." And it was this very right. derogatory way for like sailors to describe people who thought they had like rights on board a ship or something <laughs> wild like that. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's like it's really specific and it, it's interesting because it's just it's it's so like it, it's achieved like a, a distinct turn of phrase and the way he like really lovingly describes the boats and the ocean makes me think a lot about like Jake's childhood in Liverpool and his sort of like relationship with the docks. And I think I, I, I seem to remember on his Wikipedia saying he might have spent like he ran away to join the Merchant Marine. I don't know how if that happened or how long. It oh, was interesting. For. Yeah. But there's definitely uh, a part of him which is like very familiar with this, with these like concepts, whether or not he's like intimately familiar with sailing ships is another thing. And the mechanics of sailing, <laughs> right, yeah. But he's definitely familiar with, like, the people who like work on and around the, the ocean, and like, what, yeah, yeah, that, totally. what that looks like. Yeah, I was actually curious about the mechanics of when they get the burnt out ship um, at Babo's place, and he's like, "Well, it has a rudder, but it doesn't have any sails." And they're like, "All right, let's go." Like, that's, like, I don't think are, that's how that works. I think you're going to really they, struggle getting somewhere with a rudder, rudder ship. They, are they rowing or, I mean, not according to the text anyway. There's definitely, there's like a galley thing going on where you have ships that, that travel both by like human labor and also by sail. But sure. I don't think it's something that he's particularly like coherent about how he handles it. It's <laughs> right, not that, right. it's not that, um, <laughs> it's not that big a part of it. Like the, the way that the, the boat's move although it is very interesting that he goes into like again a lot of detail about the tides and about the boat like trying to move up the river and that it's low tide and that it's high tide and that we can maybe pull like pull the boat up the river sure again he has this like dock experience that he's drawing in a lot of detail um and it's just really striking to me this this like very specific facet which he really does know and he and he goes into goes into a lot of depth there before we jump into the mailbag, I just wanted to note that, like, we don't get a whole lot of, uh, like, governmental stuff in this, um, except for two things that I picked out. One, we find out at the very end of the book in, you know, the little, the the postscript, that uh, apparently the normal way of doing things at Redwall is that the abbot is elected by, like, popular acclaim, um, mm-hmm. that Abbot Bernard decided to step down, and pretty much everyone was like, well, it's got to be Saxus. Uh, and it wasn't a thing that he was seeking. He wasn't campaigning for it. It was just like, well, if everybody wants me to do this, I guess I've got to, you know, put on the abbot's robes and do that. So, I mean, that that was kind of cool, like a little bit more democratic looking than what we've had before um, at the Abbey. And then the, the other thing was uh, I noted before that the pirates don't really seem to follow any kind of like historically conventional um, uh, pirate stuff. Except for one scene where uh, Grey Patch and his like first lieutenant Big Fang are kind of fighting for control over this horde that that are trying to uh, invade Redwall Abbey, and they do functionally have a pirate election the way that the way that it it almost happens in Treasure Island when like mm-hmm. Long John Silver has him like trapped in this little fort and they don't know what the, and you know they give him the black spot and then he kind of talks them out of like kicking him out of the crew um it it doesn't go as well for uh gray patch um they're like well big fang's like 
let's just go back to the ship. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they basically take a vote. And that is more or less how it would have happened on a pirate ship. So I thought that was kind of an interesting um, addition of like democracy into this world that by and large is like force majeure. Yeah. Yeah. I like that bit. All right. So uh, I guess, it, I guess it's time for our mailbag then. Uh, let's see. Who are we going to start with? Bellardi and Gorse. Bellardi and Gorse is back with just comment for us. Uh, she says, this book is for the pirates and the lesbians. That's all. <laughs> that is her, that is her comment. <laughs> and the pirate lesbians. And the pirate mm-hmm. lesbians. Yep. Yep, more or less uh, completely agree with that. Thank you, Blarty and Gorse. Let's see. Histosol King went uh, kind of a cool direction. Actually, he had, he had several several questions. Um, I like this one. What racial stereotype are amphibians in the Redwall universe, or are they just a metaphor for humans at their most cruel and stupid? I think that jakes is just coming up with new and innovative ways to be racist about things that we don't even know about yet. <laughs> yeah i i was thinking he's a future thinker that's it's really beautiful um <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I i do think that the amphibians don't really map on to at least i don't know if someone has any ideas about that yet let us know well, because okay. I'm, i don't see it yeah, so I mean, obviously the the toads who live kind of in the the beaches around Salamandastron are they're the same sort of like savage stereotypes that we've had before, right? And and like when uh, when Martin and Dinny and Gonf in, encounter the the toads in the swamp, it's it's like almost exactly the same sort of civilization, right? Um, you got your chief, you've got a bunch of warriors. They're completely unreasonable. Um, they're just a threat. They're just an environmental threat. Um, I thought that it was interesting when they're I in the... Like, uh, go ahead. No, they just sort of seem like... Like, as opposed to where we've come across things in other books mm. that sound like um, Native American yeah. stereotypes. Yeah. And this, like, there's there's tribes and there's chieftains, but it's like, I guess... Like they're more Gallic. Yeah, they, they're like they don't really share a lot with any like like their their weapons are tridents. It's not they're not like a coherent cultural analogy. I think to like any yeah right. Maybe they're just like what he thinks Greek people were like. <laughs> <laughs> fight like some anti fight like some anti Mediterranean racism here, right? These, which is like, what we needed. Coherent, um, like olive skin toads who were just. Right, very passionate. They've got tridents. <laughs> yeah, tridents. <laughs> the Greeks. Uh, the Greeks. <laughs> very selfish. Oh man. Uh, I I did think it was kind of funny. So uh, the the when they're going through the swamp dark, mm-hmm. and they find themselves suddenly surrounded by all of these like newts and salamanders, like hundreds and hundreds of them, and Mario like talks a big game about how she's gonna like beat up the biggest one, and then the newts and salamanders don't do anything. And then they walk through the swamp dark, and the newts and salamanders don't do anything. And then they walk out of the swamp dark, and the newts and salamanders still haven't done anything. And they turn around, and they're total dicks to them. They're like, they start taunting them and like yeah. making jerk off motions at them and stuff. It's like, why? I think it makes a lot of like, it's it's a very sort of reasonable thing where they're like, we got some strangers, we're gonna keep an eye on them, make sure they don't right. fuck shit up in our swamp. Right. So, exactly. We're watching you. <laughs> Yeah. They're just such they're such assholes to these people whose land they're walking through, like without permission. <laughs> yep. Who don't 
make any kind of motion toward being hostile to them. They're just following them. Yeah. Anyway, I thought that was kind of funny. It's, it's, there's, there's, there's certainly a precedent for that. behavior. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Historical precedents. <laughs> um, yeah. Let's see. Uh, His King also asks, he says, uh, uh, Gabul is just a poor man's Clooney. Which brings me here. What do you make of the Redwall villains consistently sliding into madness? Oh, it's the, the wages well, of sin or death, right? Yeah. Yeah, evil just drives you mad. I mean, right. that's, and it's power okay. also, is that, like, as yeah. they become, like, and, and you've got, in this book, I think, a much clearer progression where people like, gain power and become more unbalanced as a result of it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. And he's just, like, he's a mob boss. Like, I don't think that he's, like, Clooney, really, in any way. He doesn't have a therapist, so this is obviously no. not really right. the issue. <laughs> he doesn't have a whole lot of interiority other than, like, being nervous that other people are trying to sabotage his plans. Yeah, right. Yeah. He's given, and having a cool sword. He's yeah, Clooney was cool. Yeah, Clooney was cool because he, he actually was, like, pl- plotting his things out in a way that you could see, whereas Gabul is, like... He's sort of just reacting to the situation that he finds himself in. Yeah, we love right. we love Clooney. Clooney Clooney really carried carried Redwall in a lot of ways. Yeah. I think. Yeah, I agree. Gabool yeah. Is not, Gabagool is just not as interesting. Right. Gabagool, it's it's he could be defeated by a union. We don't need this book. Yeah. Like, <laughs> right. <laughs> Fortune is to organize your labor. Yeah. <laughs> um, Azzle is back in our our mailbag. Welcome back, Chazalazzle. They say I thought it was fitting that. I'm going to do this backwards. So uh, Mother Mellis is the the badger marm at uh, at Redwall, and apparently the scientific name for the European badger is Mellis Mellis. So that's kind of funny. That's kind of cool. It's a neat yeah. So don't like Mellis. <laughs> <laughs> no, she sucks, yeah. dude. Aside from yeah. her brief, like very principled opposition to slavery, which is sort of the bare minimum, I would say. <laughs> uh, I have none trauma. Like it's just, it's I've got yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, I went to Catholic school. You can't just pop that in a book and expect me to be okay with it. <laughs> Quad triple pops in with a really nice question. I wonder how Gabul got his teeth replaced with gold ones. Thinky emoji. Do they have Ooh. vermin dentists in the Redwall <laughs> fictional universe? <laughs> what are the logistics of, of yeah? Yeah. Pirate, well, I mean, you know, I, yeah, yeah. I mean, going back to uh, you know historical pirates, they did often have like a ship's doctor on board mm-hmm. that probably was yeah. skilled in doing some uh, not just basic first aid, but also, I mean, that's that's where like the the peg leg thing comes from. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you had people on board who could like do amputations after a battle and stuff. So. Yeah. I mean, I would I would say that it seems like a more likely cause of having a lot of gold teeth is an absence of dentists. Um, uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so there's like a really there's like some kind of a, a, a post facto surgeon to remove your your rotting teeth, but probably not one to help you maintain them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess you just like shove them up there in the socket and hope they stick or something. I, I, I doubt know. they're doing like dental implants. You know. <laughs> Hopefully not. Yikes. <laughs> I'm sure it's more of like a denture situation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, he's got yeah. like he's he's got a bridge that he, he pops takes it out. out. Yeah, he's he takes it out bridge. every night, puts a glass of water next to his bed. <laughs> Probably yeah. contributing to his ill health, you know, because uh, you know he stopped sleeping, so he's not popping out his retainer during mm-hmm. the day. Right. Yeah. Nah. He's got to have absolutely the worst breath in the world. Oh, speaking of breath, the the running joke about the one mole who just keeps saying like. You know, I love the taste of wild garlic, but I hate the smell. And he's just 
constantly smelling of garlic. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Every friend group has that mole who constantly smells of garlic. Right. Uh, Our friends over at the Recorder on the Wall podcast uh, commented, On the humorous side, I liked when when our group touched on uh, the idea of find your blood wrath buddy. Uh, when the hares realize that a badger lord has his rage unlocked and realize they need to adopt a new protocol, I think that's really funny. It's like, oh, the boss is going crazy. Like, all right, we gotta like, we gotta go to, we gotta go to like plan blood wrath. Yeah, feel <laughs> like contingency plan. Seems like a, I, seems like what I would call like sort of an unsafe work environment. Um, <laughs> right. when, you, when your boss sort of like goes periodically into murderous rages, but I don't know. I don't I know, know if you've listened to any of their show, but they've got a really funny running joke about uh, the idea of vermin HR. Uh, that like you know, like every time something you know, like uh, Gabul decides to kill one of his lieutenants, is like somebody needs to report this to vermin HR. Uh, this is this is beyond the pale here. As um, we know, HR is functions as like an anti-union. <laughs> Uh, influence like moderating and sort of like redirecting that anger <laughs> whereas what they really need is to get organized so you can have like your fraternal order of pirates sort of thing going on there <laughs> right <laughs> uh mland sweet tea writes in uh, a series of questions i think we've talked about this pretty well but um you know where did they get the iron for the bell how big of a market is there for that does joseph have a foundry how much maritime trade exists in this universe? What's the political economy of Redwall anyway? Well, that's what we're here to find out. That's uh, yeah, that's the show. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for tuning in. That's the in. show. <laughs> it's it's blood iron. I, I'm increasingly certain that this is not an ethically made bell. <laughs> no, it's, it's not a fair trade bell. He's, <laughs> he's world building a very like unequal. Uh, like, and, this isn't an egalitarian right. society. And uh, and Quad Triple, whose whose name is is Don, and actually, uh, they they sent us a really nice somebody on one one or another like Redwall forum made like a full map of the entire Redwall universe, including everything from all of the books. Um, so we're going to have to take a look at that. But um, they they also asked uh, as our last mailbag entry here. Also, a question on the series in general. Who are the characters, if any, that seem gay-coded to you? Nah, this isn't a good book for that question. I disagree. Hear me out. Tree Bark. Tree Rose. Sorry. Tree Rose. Tree Rose the Horny is super into Roof Brush. Roof Brush doesn't really talk to anybody, has absolutely no interest in her whatsoever. Another male character in this book who does not have anything approaching any kind of a, like a love relationship is Saxtus. And at the end, Saxtus goes on lovingly about how much time he and Roof Brush spend with each other. I think that Saxtus and Roof Brush were confirmed bachelors in the 1950s sense, if you get my drift. Um... This honestly, I like not to just like uh, take this in a negative direction. I don't want to clock characters as gay. Yeah, like that kind of feels like this. It. I just don't feel like that's a good thing to do. Hmm. Like, in the sense where, like, you know, we're we're drawing on sexuality stereotypes in order to draw those conclusions. Like, yeah, that's that. that you know, it could be cute if like. Saxus 
is gay, that'd be rad. <laughs> but like, other than that, it feels like I don't know. I'm just not comfortable with it. Hmm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's it's sort of a, it's you're 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 forced to resort to like these really these like particular stereotypes to like read it into the text. Yeah, mm-hmm. and we did this with the the gay cat. Um. <laughs> yeah, I I think it's. Yeah. I I don't know. I don't know if I agree with you, Millie. Because I mean, Brian Jakes is an author, and he's writing from uh-huh. a particular perspective, and his own. Uh, like the gay cat makes sense and is fine because he's supposed to be a gay cat, right? <laughs> like. Like, he, he actually is embodying these stereotypes, but, like, hunting for different things that are going to actually, like, assist us in, like, clocking characters. Ah, see, like, that's, it's not okay to clock that's, people. That's why I disagree with you. It was easy to say that Squire Julian Gingivere was gay because he is, like, stereotypically coded as gay. Um, right. Whereas with uh, Roof and Saxtus, it's like... It's just, like, they had a very, like, an incredibly close, like, intimate friendship in a world where, like, sexuality more or less does not exist, right? Well, it does exist, but it's very, I I think, like, to be, to be clear, like, sexuality does exist in the Redable books, and it's almost universally a very conservative one. It's one where people only feel sexual attraction to the person they're intended to, which is a person, which is both a character of the same species and and is the same and is like exactly the same age, and that it always, pretty much always works out, right? Right. It's not like you've got to. I think you've got to do a lot of work to read in sexuality outside of those very limited bounds. Yeah this this doesn't seem like much more of a stretch to me to say that you know the way that Saxus writes about Roof Brush um, is is any more uh, any more of a reach than when people read say. Uh, the letters that, or the the diary entries that, like Alexander Hamilton wrote about uh, John Lawrence, right? That I mean, it's. it's I would say that's. A bit I think of a it's. Reach yeah, too. I don't like that either. I think well, I, but I, I think it's fair to speculate about though. Um, I mean, it's fair to speculate about it, but like also, those are real people. Is the distinction making sense? That seems that, worse like, to me somehow than than applying it to fictional characters. I mean, okay, whatever. Set this out. <laughs> All right. Um, very, I, I guess our, our our answer on this one is like not really anybody. Uh, not uh, definitely not definitively in this one. I mean, like it's it's notable that Mariel, well, that Mariel doesn't really have like uh, romantic interest, and in that like she's a female character who doesn't have that hoisted upon her, right? Um, which is remarkable in most storytelling. Yeah. Um, and in this, in a lot of, in most cases, people would usually draw the conclusion that she's a lesbian. I'm going to go out there and say that she's ace. Okay, um, yeah. <laughs> and I suppose we'll find out more ace because, uh, because apparently, yeah, because apparently Mariel and Danden reappear in Mary over Redwall part two, uh, the, re- the return of Goldwacker Pete. Um, so I guess we'll, we'll find out more about the nature of their relationship, uh, once we get to that book. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. So that's the end of the that's the end of the mailbag. So it's time for us to uh, enter the kitchens and let Melly tell us about how terrible the recipes were in this one. Well, I mean, like it's just it's like it's this is fucked up. <laughs> he actually goes into detail and describes how one of these things is made, right. which is 
supposed to be a blessing for me, right? Where I'm just sort of like reverse engineering these <laughs> recipes based off of descriptions, which I now prefer and will prefer forever. Because here's here's how he described this. Okay, so you get uh, chestnut pastry, which chestnut flour for pastry is great. I uh, highly suggest it. Mm-hmm. We should all be using chestnuts more often. Cool. So first, you do a thick coating of red currant jelly inside of a bowl. And then you get pastry and you roll it out really, really thin and you press it into the bowl so that it's resting in the jelly. So between the bowl and the pastry, there's jelly. (laughs) Just in the bowl. (laughs) Just in the bowl. Like, that's just not how food works. Um, And then, like, it goes on. Okay, so we need blackberries. We need them for the pudding. Um, make sure the sweet chestnut pastry is bedded into the currant jelly around the sides of the bowl. And then we coat the pastry with an extra thick layer of yellow primrose cream. Having So, okay, so inside of that, now we have a, a thick layer of cream. Also, this is a bowl. How are these things staying on the sides? <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Having done that, we take the blackberries and starting from the bottom of the basin, we place them on the cream, pressing just lightly enough to make them stick to the cream. So this is like a pudding, like a, a uh, like a custard almost that is somehow adhering to the sides of a <laughs> bowl. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we're layering blackberries up. Mm-hmm. And then, okay, don't be clumsy. Or you might burst the berries on what? What is the surface also, that you might burst the berries blackberries on? Blackberries are very um, coherent. Right. They're yeah. not going to explode on you if you're no. <laughs> a little ungentle with them. <laughs> um, and then... I'm going to coat these thick almond wafers with some light honey cream, like so. So he's dipping almond wafers into them. And then you see how easily they stick to the blackberries when I use them for the next layer. So if I were creating, if I were creating like a a layered sort of dome dish, which this appears to be so far, you would like have to like cool it or freeze it in between these things because the berries and the cream are going to start sliding towards the center. Right. And then we're just putting on more things, including almond wafers that have honey cream in them. (laughs) Um, So it's just like this absurd seven layer dip. Um, And then, and then there's apple cream. So like now we have a, a cream that's flavored with flowers, blackberries, chestnuts, um, almond wafers, honey cream, and apple cream into the center. So we've got like this <laughs> cacophony of really weird flavors that are just going to hit each other and not Billy, would, give. Would you say it's safe to say that there's a lot going on in this dish? I'm not done yet. <laughs> I'm not done yet because it gets even weirder. <laughs> then, okay, so we've got this bowl and it's full of this weird layered thing. And then on top of it, you would think like, okay, well, maybe we're going to put like it's a pastry, so maybe it's going to be like a pie, and we'll put some more chestnut over the top of it. No, now we've got short hazelnut pastry, which somehow rolls out, and you're able to put that on the top of it and then glaze it with honey. Why? So, <laughs> Lots of and then, and so you glaze it with honey to give it a nice shiny crust, and then you open the oven and put it in there. What? Baking, how does that even the cream? <laughs> Can you just think about how much cream and how many like fruits are in there and that there's like a pie crust, like a chestnut crust that's just sitting between that and a layer of jam. I mean, you don't love boiled cream. Who doesn't love <laughs> Who doesn't love that? 
<laughs> like I'm losing my pass. mind. <laughs> <laughs> this is ridiculous. It's out of control. I am offended. Ryan Jake's I like read it out loud and was like screaming and pacing around my house. I was I was so glad that you focused on that one, but I I was uh, I I thought that you might go for the uh, the loaf of bread the size of a badger. How does that um, even work? What, is what that? are the logistics? How do you think that? <laughs> that that also apparently had like a bunch of gravy and like parsnips and like carrots That's and a potatoes. Pie, dude, he doesn't know what things are. <laughs> this- the thing I just described isn't a pudding; it's a pie that's gonna have a soggy crust. Right. Or it can be really burnt because it's that's massive. That's not bread; it's a pie. And you can't cook it through without, yeah. And also, he's British. Like he's British. There's only one thing that the British love, and that is pie. And like puddings. they have a, puddings and, and puddings. Pie. And a, there's a billion different kinds of them, but they know the difference between a pudding and a pie because right. it's like the religion. The things they cook. Well, Melly, uh, did, but, I mean, did you find something from the book that that you thought you might make for the? Uh... Listen, you know what? Babo is the only character in any of these books who actually knows how to cook. Okay, I'm sad. glad Friar Hugo's dead. Um, <laughs> like, like Babo, he he had like a slightly spicy shrimp and sea cabbage stew with some turnips in it, and I think I could make that really nice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so, like, and then, like, also, they had another thing that was like um, oat cakes and honey and some smoked fish. Uh-huh. So, like, all of those things together would be very charming. Sure. So, sure. I think I'm just going to do an ode to Babo for the meal this time. Love it. Thank you, Babo. Yeah, thank yeah. you, Babo. Yeah, thank, thank you, Babo, really for, being, unsung, for rescuing me. Really the unsung hero of, of the book. He, He's a great character. He did so much. Yeah. He like he knew that you had to throw food at the lobster in order to get the lobster to pay attention to something else. Yep. Coincidentally, how you can get past me <laughs> throw food at me. <laughs> just just throw food at her until she stops coming out from under her rock and then right. go go and get whatever treasure sitting in front of her. Yeah. I can, That's right. I can relate to this lobster a lot also. Um, and also his nude. We love we love Baba with his nude. Yep. That soup, that 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 soup sounds great. Okay. Yeah, it's gonna be like good. A spicy, salty sea soup. Absolutely. Yeah, with like wakame and it said mm. sea cabbage, but we can put some real cabbage in there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, listeners, remember that if you want access to these recipes that Millie is making, you can become a subscriber at our Patreon, uh, Patreon.com/slash/TheRedWallPod. Um, subscribers get. Depending on your level, you get a full recipe that she makes, and the ones she's made so far are absolutely gorgeous. And or you get a candied chestnut recipe. Uh, it didn't actually see candied chestnuts uh, in this book, but notable absence. Uh, yeah, I'm just like I, I'm just doing candied chestnuts uh, as inspired by books. Yeah, so <laughs> it's the um, based on a true story recipe. Right. Right. <laughs> Yeah, so please uh, consider becoming a a subscriber to our Patreon. It helps us pay for uh, the books that we're reading and also for hosting this podcast. And um, if you aren't already, follow us on our Twitter at The Red Wall Pod. And I've been trying to get the word out also on the official Red Wall forums. And there are a couple of subreddits that are dedicated to Red Wall. So there's a lot of discussion going on on those too. So um, thank you, Melly, and thank you, Sam. For uh, for joining us for this this 
actually really lovely book. Lots to mm-hmm. talk about. Yeah, thank you too. I'm, I'm, I'm after reading this, I'm genuinely excited to see how he develops as an author. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. So, uh, yeah, I think that's it for for this episode. And next month we'll be back with. Uh, Salamandastron. We get a, a little bit more, yes. more badger lore, more hares. Mm-hmm. I just want to say the sparrows are, are, are back, and four of them are fighting again. Nice. Four way. <laughs> Perfect. They don't have one of them is not wearing a sword that doesn't look like it. It belongs to him. <laughs> no. Okay. I'll keep an eye out. <laughs> All right, listeners. Uh, you wallflowers. We'll see you next month. See you. Bye.